Hi, this is Colin Mockery, and you're listening to Tobin Tonight. First off, welcome to Tobin Tonight. Thank you very much. You grew up in Scotland. You're the oldest of three. Your dad was an airline maintenance executive. In 1964, you moved to Canada, just outside Montreal. How old were you, and what was that like? I was sick. We arrived by boat, and I remember there was one patch of ocean that we hit where everyone got seasick. It was just vomit everywhere. That's my earliest memory of coming to Canada. Okay. And then five years later, it was off to BC. What prompted that move? I believe uh, my parents were feeling uneasy about the unrest that was happening in Quebec. Uh, there had been bomb threats at our school. I think that was part of the reason they wanted to get out there. What was life like on the West Coast? Uh, it was great. I mean, Vancouver is a beautiful city. You know, lots of water. The weather, you know, sometimes gets a little too rainy, but that was, uh, especially during my teen years when I was filled with angst, that was perfect weather for me. It was a, a great place to, to grow up. I had a lot of friends there. still have a lot of friends there. It really is my home. We know you've been on the West Coast. Have you ever gone all the way to the east to Newfoundland? Yes, about... Seven years ago, we took a family vacation there, so we, we spent two weeks in Newfoundland with the Trinity Bay. And again, a beautiful place. The people are just uh, magical, lovely people. So, yeah, I guess I've been uh, all around this great country. What was maybe your best place to stay? Like, if you were to retire in a place in Canada, where would you go? I would probably go Vancouver. I'm a big fan of the ocean and mountains, and I, I feel really comfortable in that sort of environment. So I think that's a, a place I would... Uh, talking my wife into it may be difficult, but <laughs> that's where I'd love to go. It's interesting because, you know, people know you from Whose Lines in Anyway in 22 Minutes. I read that neighbors used to call you shy. You even proclaimed yourself as a, a loner. Why did you feel that way? Uh, I was a very quiet kid. I mean, I was a, a bookworm. My life basically was just reading all the time, kind of kept to myself. I was quiet. I had a, a small group of friends. And it wasn't until grade 11 where one of my friends dared me to try out for the school play. I did. I got the part. And then I got my first laugh from that. And that, that moment actually kind of changed my life. It made me a little more outgoing, gave me a career to, to go after. So answering my friend's bet sort of changed my life. I'm interested in that because I kind of felt the same way when I was in high school. I, I And even growing in junior high, I kind of stuck to myself, didn't really have a lot of people to interact with. But now I find that anything I can do to get a laugh, it kind of feels like people come to you or they want to be around you a little bit more. Is that what kind of draw or drew you to when you first got that laughter that, hey, this is something that I can kind of build a relationship and friendships around? I, I don't know if I thought about it that clearly. I just, it had been like I became addicted to some sort of drug. Immediately when I got that first laugh, I thought, no, this is what I want all the time. I want just to have that feeling. And I guess it wasn't until later that I realized that you know, people love to hang around uh, funny people who make you laugh. Who doesn't want to hang around that? It wasn't until later that I realized the power of comedy. Speaking of comedy, once you graduated your high school, you were valedictorian, something that I haven't accomplished, so there's one thing you already have on me. But tell me about your time at Studio 58. Studio 58 is... I would say probably the leading theater school in Vancouver. Uh, what I loved about it were all the classes were taught by working actors. So you not only got their experiences 
in the profession, but you also got a chance to hear what it was really like in, uh, as an actor's life, the auditioning, the self-doubt, all that stuff. Again, it was a tough time for me my first year till I sort of became more relaxed and less fearful. And then the last couple of years were really a good time for me. I learned an awful lot. I learned how to deal with audiences. I learned how to work with people. That was a really good place for me to be at that time. And what made it a tough time to begin with? I think I was still shy, and I was coming out of high school. I was still fairly, I was like 17, very quiet. I was sort of fearful. It wasn't until I learned that, well, if I'm not doing anything, I'm not going to go anywhere. I've got to push myself, and it may scare me, but if I don't do that, I'll never learn about what I can or cannot do. So it took me a while to figure out, oh, I'm just going for this. I'm just going for it. I don't care what people think. I just want to uh, get that experience. You mentioned about being able to work a crowd and work the audience. Can you kind of elaborate on that, like the, the skills you learned? I didn't become very proficient at it until I went to Second City. When we do the improv set, sometimes while people were setting up for a scene, if you were introducing, they would say, just stall for a while. And I made a point of doing those stalls because they scared me. I, I didn't feel comfortable talking to the audience. So I, I did it as much as I can I, until I felt more comfortable, found ways to sort of make them laugh, do a little bit, until it became sort of my favorite thing in the show was to interact with the audience. In the theater sports league, you kind of met your buddy Ryan Stiles. Can you remember your first encounter or how that relationship started? Yeah, I was at theater sports, which was still fairly new. Ryan, at that point, was a stand-up uh, working at a club. Punchlines? Uh, Punchlines, yes. And a mutual friend of ours was asked to start this improv troupe at Punchlines. So Ryan was involved. And through my friend Jim, he introduced the two of us. And then we managed to get on a theater sports team together. And it was one of those things where it was just from the very first time we worked together, it, it worked. We seemed to sort of know where each other was going to go in the scene. And yeah, it's been a relationship that's really worked out for me in, in many ways. He's always sort of been there for me. Because of him, I ended up meeting my wife. So Ryan's been kind of an important part of my world. Can you kind of elaborate how you've met your wife to Ryan Stiles in that case? Because I know you, you, she was involved with Second City as well. Expo 86 was in Vancouver, and Ryan had been cast in the Second City show there. And uh, because, of course, he's so good, they said, would you come back to Toronto and do the main stage? So he did. And I moved out there a couple of months later. And uh, one day he called me and said, there's an opening in the touring company. Why don't you uh, try out for it? So he spoke to some people there. I auditioned. And the woman I auditioned for became my wife like two years later. Yeah, it was a good audition for me. I got, I got a job and a wife. Yeah, I was just about to say, it was a great career move and great uh, for your personal life as well. Yeah, it was uh, a tough audition, i got to say. Explain that. Why Why did you feel like it was a tough audition? Was it just because of the prestige of Second City? Uh, certainly, that's a part of it. Then you start off with like 30 people, and then you go down to, you know, like 20, and then 10, until there's like six of you. So it was like a two, three-hour audition process. It was, it was long and, and tough until finally uh, Deb came up and said, well, it was between you and the cute guy, but you've got it. How old were you at this time when you were going to Second City? I was 30. 30, okay. Do you feel like that was a little bit late in a career to do comedy at 30, or do you think like that's around the peak age? I think 
it was a good time for me to be at Second City because I'd been working enough to know what the job was. Also, uh, I was fairly confident in what I was doing, so I didn't have to worry. Uh, a lot of younger actors are going to Second City. There's, especially if it's their first job ever, there's a lot of pressure to put up a show and to work with people you've never worked with before. But I felt fairly confident in my abilities and, uh, and how I could work with people. Yeah, I was also lucky I had a really good cast that I could work with. And I think we're all around the same age. We were a more mature cast than what Second City usually has. So it, it's, it also helps when you're writing a show, too. You have a, you know, a, a bit more of a mature point of view and different things um, affect you than would affect younger people, things you want to write about. Scenes from a hat. This is for all four of you. Scenes from a All-American hat. Confusing battle cries. Get my brown pants! Okay, strange things to find in your bed. Colin! Teach me how to sing like you! Back here with Colin Mockery. Uh, you just heard a couple of clips there from Scenes from a Hat, one of the games that they play on Whose Lines and Anyway, one of my all-time favorites on the show. Uh, Colin, I heard that you love that part, you love playing that game, but you weren't too fond of the hoedown. Explain. Tell us. Why not a fan? Uh, I like the scenes from a hat because it was you know very short scenes that really kind of sparked... It's almost the Twitter of Who's Line. You've got to get your joke out there in 140 characters or less. So I, I like that sort of, the quickness of it, how it, we didn't have a chance to like, you know, plan things or there wasn't a lot of uh, gimmick to, to the scene. It was just us being quick-witted, which I enjoyed. And hoedown, I don't think I'm alone with the hoedown <laughs> thing. In fact, I can say positively that everyone hates a hoedown in the cast. I, I have no idea why audiences sort of took to it and enjoy it, because we despise it. You know, we're still doing it on the new show, and that's like 30 years of hoedowns we've been doing. <laughs> do, you, do you mind if uh, I kind of give a, a reason why we like the hoedown? Go ahead. I think the reason we like the hoedown is just because we've seen over the years how much you guys don't like it, and it just kind of makes us eager to find out what you guys are going to be able to, to say, because we, we know you're good at improv, but when it comes to something that you don't want to do or don't like doing, it's kind of like, all right, we know they don't like it, they know this is maybe their weak spot, but let's see how well they can make it work, and especially... When I'm watching the hoedowns now from back when Drew Carey was hosting the show, you can see Ryan Stiles kind of finding a way to basically give the finger to the hoedown in the in a PG way. But there, there are some good ones in the hoedown that I think are pretty special, like the one where I think Drew Carey messes up his line, and then you have to kind of rhyme with every second person. So when he messed up his line, you didn't know what to say. And I think Ryan Stiles just kind of went blah, 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 blah. And then you went meow. So I thought that was kind of funny because I'm like, that's all he can do. Where else is he going to go? But the, the crowd dug it up and they liked it. And I think that's why we like the hoedown because it's one of those segments that we see just how talented you guys are. 
Okay, I'll buy that. <laughs> I feel there's more cruelty involved, but all right. No, I'll take that. And, and of course, the other thing that I, I'll agree with you in this one is the, the musical segments. I, I don't mind the musical segments, but apparently you didn't like them as much. Can you explain that a little bit further? Um, I don't mind like what like the greatest hits that we do. That's actually one of my favorite games because Ryan and I just get to riff for a little bit. Then we throw it over to the guys who do the singing and uh, do it well. For me... When I have to do a musical game, the, the big thing is I am so frustrated that I can't do it. I would like when I watch someone uh, like Wayne do a musical thing, you know, it's funny. It sort of makes fun of the musical style a little bit, but it yeah. also sounds good. I can't do any of those. So it's really frustrating to me that, and it's something I would love to do. If I could be a singer, that would be a great thing for me. But because I can't do it, it just frustrates me because I, in my head, it just sounds beautiful. The melody is soaring and sounding great, but I, I can't do it. So I, I feel like part of my comedy arsenal has been taken away from me. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I mean, the th I remember the one, one time that he actually had you come up and sing with him. The crowd was into it, but I remember at the end of it, you, you kind of yelled out, teach me how to sing like you. And I was like, I understand that he wants to learn how to, he wants to be able to sing, but he does so many other things well on this show that it, it evens out. Like you can do the greatest hits. You do the weird news anchor. Well, scenes from a hat is also one of my favorite things that you do. It seems like if that's the only thing that is the downfall or is something that you don't think you're good at, I think it, it evens out when you're good at like five and six other things. You're really doing wonders for my self-esteem. <laughs> I think part of it also is, you know, it's a human thing to go sort of obsess on the thing you can't do. You sort of take for granted. It's like, okay, okay, I can do that. I can do that. But why can't I do this? Why? It seems so easy when other people do it. I think that's the frustrating part. I mean, I've certainly gotten better at singing over the, the years. And I will never be in the class of, you know, Wayne or Brad or Chip. Now I'm feeling confident. I can, I, I figure, okay, it's not going to sound great, but I think I can get some good lines in. The, the one thing, actually, while we're still on this is you mentioned about strengths and weaknesses. Can you kind of give us what your opinion is, some of the people's strengths on that cast, what they were good at, and what you think they didn't do so good at? <laughs> okay. Well, this is going to cause problems, <laughs> I can tell. Okay, well, Ryan, let's talk about Ryan. You know, he doesn't really have... I'm trying to think of weakness, because he, he can sing, and he can uh, be funny while he's doing it. Jeez, oh, I can't even think of one. Well, that makes sense. Canadians are perfect, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's not really Canadian. <laughs> Depending on where he is, he pushes his American or his Canadian. He's just trying to get the best of the audience. So the other one, of course, we know that Wayne Brady is a good, a good singer, and he does pretty well scenes from a hat but one of the area and again you don't have to mention it's just something i thought would be kind of funny to say what area do you think that he could do a little bit better at <laughs> oh um let me think um well oh god i you know what i can't answer that <laughs> That's fine if you can't answer. I mean, you guys are buddies, and who knows? You, you never know who's out there listening, and he might come in one day and say, can't believe you said that, and then it'll come back on me. Yeah. The beauty of this cast is that any night any of us can be the best, and also uh, any night we could be the worst. You know, we, you'll, you have your ups and downs. You, you know, you can't be 100% every show. 
I would say probably our weaknesses would come from being a human, like being tired or being a little sick or just for whatever reason not having it that night. So it's, it's never about skill level. You've had multiple hosts in the process of the show. You had the British host, you had Drew Carey, now you have the one that's on the CW. What do you think that each one brought to, to the game itself? Well, starting off with Clive, our English host, he was sort of your stereotypical English guy. Very smart, very witty, very sarcastic. And he, he sort of set the template for the host, I think. And he certainly got much more relaxed with it as the, the years went on. If you watch his first couple of shows, he's really stiff and tense. But then he kind of lightens up and sort of finds his way into what the host is. So he sort of set the template for everyone that came after. The thing about Drew is so stereotypically American. And he brought sort of an infectious infection not infection <laughs> but he loved the show he loved watching it and i think the, the audience caught on to that and really enjoyed it you know he certainly gave as good as he got insult wise on, on the show there was a nice bantering feel it really felt like sort of a green room of comedians trying to top each other and aisha brings just sort of this cool uh, new energy you know i know i was worried when we first started not because of her abilities but i thought well what am i going to make fun of yeah she's this cool beautiful black woman who loves technology loves everything nerds love what is her weakness and it took us a couple of shows but we found it so at the end of the show there's obviously a winner even though the points don't matter how do you find out who the winner is i don't know <laughs> someone has actually watched all the shows and calculated the points that we all had. Oh, nice. Is that nice, though, or is that a cry for help? <laughs> Hard to say. I think a little bit of both, but I think if they're a passionate fan, they, they, it's something, like you said, it's just is in their back of their mind, and they need to know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the points were never, never important. They were always just used as sort of an editing point for the producer, because as he's watching the show, he is sort of editing it into three different shows. And so sometimes they just say, okay, we're giving, I'm giving you each a thousand points, but you don't really know what game it's alluding to. Yeah. It could follow greatest hits, but it actually wasn't. It, it's just somewhere to sort of stick the, the, the games together, a little, a little segue. Okay. So it really had no importance at all. Yeah, because I've noticed on, when I'm looking at YouTube, there could be two different scenes from a hat you could be watching scenes from a hat number 30 and scenes from a hat number 60 and you're kind of the, the same ideas are being thrown out of the hat but it's just a different setup yeah. so how long did it did it actually take for a taping like how long were you there for was it an hour or two hours we would tape for four hours wow uh the first three hours were just us doing games so we would do like 24 25 games Okay. And then the last hour is the producer sort of editing as he goes along. So Aisha will do a couple of different uh, introductions. There's shots of the audience. Her introducing, like, tonight's first game is uh, questions only, or tonight's first game is scenes from a hat. That's actually where we have to work the most because, um, as you can imagine, it's not that exciting for the audience. <laughs> so we're constantly joking around and trying to get keep the audience's energy up so 
that's the most grueling part of our, our evening. You were also on This Hour Has 22 Minutes for, I think it was from 2001 to 2003. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how that came to be? I was guest starring on a show called Made in Canada that starred uh, young Rick Mercer, who had announced that he was leaving 22 Minutes. And the showrunner of uh, Made in Canada was also the showrunner of 22 Minutes, um, Mark Farrell. And uh, during a lunch one day, I was talking to one of the cast people. Somebody had mentioned Rick was leaving 22 Minutes, and he said to me jokingly, maybe you should try out for that since you don't have enough work. (laughs) And Mark walked by at that point, and I think maybe that sort of gave him uh, an idea. So he called me, and I auditioned and got it. We've actually had Mark Critch actually on here a few weeks ago, and he talked about how fun it was to have you on the, the set and talk to you. And he mentioned, like, once you realized that you didn't want to do it any longer, you said to him, and I think Sean Majunder, he said, one of you guys is going to get a gig out of this. Can you kind of explain why didn't you like doing it or what caused you to leave? I actually enjoyed doing it and learned a lot. My first show was like uh, four weeks after 9-11. So it was a, uh, a tough time to write comedy about what was going on because everybody was so freaked out and scared. It was interesting also because I, I never really written any political stuff. It really wasn't my style. But through the cast and the writing staff, I, I learned how to come up with the things and how to work around when all the news is so horrible in the world, how to still find the comedy in that. The only problem was, at the same time, I was doing Whose Line. So I was going from East Coast to West Coast, and it just started to get to me. At one point, I was suffering from exhaustion. I I couldn't go in, and I think that was actually Mark Critch's big break, because he filled in for me that show. Yeah, Mark said that as well. I mean, I think it all worked out. I mean, you've done well for yourself without the 22 minutes and prior to it. So, I mean, to each their own. And I would not have traded that time for anything. As I said, I learned a lot about the writing of comedy. And working with that cast was great. They were a dream cast, and they really pushed you to be the best you could be. So I I love those situations now where there's a little pressure on you, but you also love the people you're working with. You were on CBC talking with Wendy about your daughter Mm -hmm. coming out as transgender. What what was that like when that first all came about? Did did she come to you first, or was it something that you kind of had to take time, or did you notice it over time? It was the three of us, my wife, my daughter, and, uh, and I, have always been really close. So she's always been very open with us about everything, sometimes in a scary way where I go, you know what, I don't need to know anything. <laughs> it, it started off uh, gradually, I guess, um, a couple of years, you know, maybe five years ago, she came out to us as bisexual. And then uh, a year later, she said, I want to explore my feminine side more, maybe wear more feminine clothing. And then it ended up with, I'm going to transition. So it it wasn't a shock uh, by any means. Uh, It was sort of a gradual uh, working to it. I mean, right off the bat, we were both very supportive. Our thing always was worried about her safety because it's still uh, a, a lot of people out there are just not educated about the, the, the whole thing. So there was that your basic parents fear for your child's safety. But she was great in that you know she talked us through everything, sent us all this information so we were uh, sort of on a level playing field and it's just been um, 
an easy transition for us, so to speak, as a family, because she's still the same kid we grew up with, just but gender's different, if that makes any sense. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's definitely what, like you said, is we're still, it's something new that we're learning about. And again, even when I'm trying to come up with questions to make sure it doesn't come off insulting, it's definitely something that even people that want to be doing this kind of thing of interviewing transgender people or interviewing their parents, you have to be careful of what terms you use and try not to insult them. But at the same time, is you're trying to help them get the message across so that they're not seen the wrong way or they're not taken the wrong way. Um, because at the end of the day, it's it's basically who they are, who they want to be, and it, it really doesn't matter to to us because I mean we're not the ones living in their body so would you rather the person be unhappy living one way or be content with who they are and who they want to be exactly I, and I find uh, sometimes it seems these days that we lack empathy you know when you see some of the programs that have just been cut in the United States you think okay I understand how I, I understand fiscal responsibility but really does it have to come at the expense of the quality of people's lives. Why can't we take care of each other? And why can't we try to understand each other? You know, we all have our individual problems. We certainly like it when somebody is empathetic towards us and can sort of see our point of view. Uh, something like transitioning, a lot of people, and I, myself included, I don't, because I've always been satisfied and happy with who I am, it's not something I can truly understand but there, I, I can certainly be empathetic and be there for the person that I love. I don't understand the change you're going through, but I totally support you and will be there for you. And I'm learning more about it as I, I, I go along. So I, I think we just have to uh, be a little more open-hearted these days. And how important is it to be supportive, not just in the kind of the father-daughter relationship, but just as an overall? How important is, is that? Uh, you mean with regards to my family or just everyone? Well, we'll go with the family first, and then we'll talk everyone. Um, you know, we've always been really supportive of her. She's a, a great musician. She's a great drummer. Uh, we actually have acted together. She's a really good actress. She's a funny improviser. So we always supported, even though, you know, if you're an entertainer, you never want your kid to go into entertainment because <laughs> it's, it's a horrible life if it doesn't go well for you. I, you know, Deb and I have both been very lucky, so and we're part of a very small percentage of the acting community. But we supported because we saw that she loved it, and um, Deb's always supporting me if I try to do. Uh, I did a play a couple of years ago, and she was uh, totally supportive. Um, she does a lot of writing. I support her wholeheartedly um, it's nice when the people that you love uh, are there for you that's going to do it for this episode of Tobin Tonight our thanks to Colin Mockery for coming on the show remember you can find past present and future episodes on TobinTonight.com Spotify and iTunes follow us on Twitter like us on Facebook and leave a comment or two for Tobin and myself this is Jacob saying Whose Line Is It Anyways has some great cast members, but I don't know where we'd be without the bromance and great chemistry of Ryan and Colin. Thanks for listening, and good night.
I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.